Welcome to a very special edition of Fun Games with Serious People. I'm Colleen Macklin. As we were wrapping up this season, I reached out to some of my earliest guests to record some extra bits for their episodes. And one of those people was Lane Nooney from the episode Is Untitled Goose Game Queer? Here's Lane. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. I'm a computer and video game historian. I'm writing books currently on the history of the Apple II microcomputer, as well as a book on the history of Sierra Online from a perspective of labor. And I teach classes on the historic and contemporary video game industry. Now, this was midway through New York City's COVID-19 quarantine. So you might notice the audio quality isn't as great as it is in our studio. But I think this conversation is worth listening through the occasional video conference blips. While I meant to talk with Lane about some topics that came up during the Untitled Goose Game episode, we tumbled into a really interesting conversation about Animal Crossing, the game that defines the quarantine experience for so many people. While everyone's confined to their apartments and homes, in Animal Crossing, we can visit each other's islands, maybe buy some turnips. So I visited Lane via Zoom to talk about how Animal Crossing fits into game history and this specific moment. I'm here talking with Lane Nooney, and it is uh, uh, in the midst of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we're uh, quarantined. Lane is already added a full-time job to your many, many jobs, <laughs> like helping distribute PPE to medical professionals. That's pretty incredible. What's the organization? Uh, it's called The Last Mile NYC PPE. So The Last Mile is a grassroots network of kind of independently organized hubs for doing... Um, so there's different branches. There's like a branch in LA, San Diego. We're trying to get them up and running in cities. Um, so they're organized by folks trying to get PPE sourced dominantly from China, but in some cases, if they can, from the US. And then what's particular about our group is that we do really robust distribution. So it's not just that we get PPE, it's that we know who to give it to because wow. we're building independent relationships with healthcare workers who are at the front lines of working with COVID. And so that's the, that's the thing that we have that a lot of other, you know, folks who maybe started GoFundMes to like raise funds to organize PPE, they get it and then they're like, who do we give it to? And actually we're like, well, actually we know because we have like, a system for tracking risk and we know every single hospital in the city and uh, yeah so I'm working with the New York branch of that I'm training uh, and managing all the volunteers who do intake calls with all of New York City all the healthcare workers who are contacting us uh, and it's wild we're speaking to folks um, everywhere from being you know physicians and heads of ER to clerical staff at nursing homes right there's a lot of people being left out of the narratives we're telling right now about where this disaster is hitting Right, right. Wow. Um, well, gosh, I mean, thank you for your service. You're right there in the middle of it, and you're 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 moving you're moving masks. Who would have thought that a a, a, a computer history, a video game history professor uh, would be doing this? I'm good at organizing things. That's that's my main gift. I don't leave my apartment, but we have a we do have a whole courier crew of bicyclists and motorcyclists and people with really big vans who drive around and drop this stuff off doing contact delivery throughout the city. Uh, wow. it's, quite, it's quite a phenomenal operation. I've heard rumor that we even have 
a partnership with a group that has an all-female motorcycle gang. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I've yet to see photo evidence, but. This has got to be made into a major motion picture. I just, I can see it. <laughs> Actually, my, one of my plans is to do oral histories with everyone involved in this organization. Like once, once, you know, the heat of this has dissipated and some time has passed and we've been able to collect ourselves. I want to make sure that we produce records of like the, the things that we've done and that I get some of the comments of folks because I think this is a very um, unique group uh, yeah. doing a very unusual kind of work in the midst of a global crisis. And I, I want to make sure there's like a, I'm still always in there with my historian's cap on is what I'm saying. You're, you're going to do it. You're going to write the history and I can't wait um, till this is over uh, and we can look back on it. God. Yeah. It feels, it feels weird sometimes thinking that it'll be over. Like I sometimes worry that that's a illusion of mind. Yeah. Um, that we talk about what it's happens when it's over. I'm like, I'm not, I'm trying not to feel confident about the idea that this is simply a state and things will go back to normal. I think normal's going to look pretty bad yeah. when we get out of here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's uh, uh, one of the more interesting things about this whole, I guess, interesting in a way that's not positive, but about this whole situation is that it's really unknown, right? Like we have no idea. Um, well, yeah, we are, the first email I sent to my students said, we are living through capital H history. Like this is what this looks like um, in an unprecedented way that I don't think any of us have, you know, maybe the nearest analog is like something like 9-11. Right, but. yeah. Wow, well, um, you know, it, it feels kind of funny in this context to be calling you and uh, talking about uh, untitled goose game and video games and queerness, but here we are. <laughs> you know, these are these are also things that are part of our lives, and I think we're going to have a little conversation about Animal Crossing as I oh, pull yeah, up my are. Switch Lite. And actually, so I'm teaching a class on um, the video game industry right now. This is my bread and butter class at NYU, and we talk about, you know, I open every class with a COVID update with, like, how has COVID impacted the game industry? This is what we're talking about at the beginning of every class. And Animal Crossing is a big part of this, actually. Wow. You know? yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of become, you know, the emblematic game. I mean, we, we were, we, you know, when we played Untitled Goose Game, that was it. That was the meme game of the century. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the game of 2019, right? Yeah. That was the yeah. indie breakout hit. It, came, it was, you know, distinctly tied to the Epic Game Store. It had that kind of, right? It was writing a whole bunch of particular cultural currents. Um, it was supposed to, I think it was, we hadn't seen in a while a game made by that small of a team that had been that breakout of a success with that, with that wide a possibility of player base, you know? I mean, I think we've seen other small, um, small, small, like creations by small teams happen, but I'm thinking about something like getting over it with Bennett Foddy, right? But that's not a game that anybody can play. Yeah, pretty, pretty so, rough. And, and yeah, yeah. Goose Game was, yeah. was really, I think it, it reinvigorated a kind of fantasy we had about the really early days of indie games, where it was like, yeah, some plucky developers can come along and uh, totally um, produce something for mass consumption, and it can work on these digital distribution networks, right? It felt like a victory story. Yeah, and, and you know, we we kind of left a thread dangling uh, months ago when we did that uh, recording, 
you said something about the indie apocalypse, and I was like, oh, Lane, you, you've got to explain that later. And, I, and here it is now, months later. <laughs> and now that you've listened to all the audio, you're like, wait, we never actually defined this. We did not pick up that thread. So, so it really, it kind of, um, the indie apocalypse was a moment when indie developers were like, ah, the, the market's saturated, right? There's, there's just too many indie games out there. Yeah, so the indie apocalypse sort of happens, um, I mean, I think some indie devs would say there's been a couple of them. My sense is, um, and the way I teach this in my, so this is a term one that indie devs themselves use, right? And, you know, Simon Carlos did this fabulous blog post on what he calls the three eras of discoverability in digital game or in, in the game industry. And there's like everything that happened before like 2008 where we bought games in stores. And then there's what happened in like 2008 roughly when we get the convergence of things like Steam, the iPhone, uh, you know, Xbox Live, right? Those kinds of platforms happening. Suddenly you have storefronts that don't have a lot of product. And then add about seven years to that, you know, around 2013. And what happens in a lot of those storefronts is you, you have, uh, so, you know, after Steam Greenlight uh, goes, after they remove that, right, and they open up their storefront, um, you have a flooding of these digital distribution markets with um, really, really high volumes of games, right? Yeah. So people are releasing hundreds or, you know, a dozen games a day or something like that, or even a higher volume. You so know, it's impossible for the, for, the, for the game player to find... Yeah, so you have what's called yeah. the problem of discoverability, right? So whereas these digital distribution platforms were heralded as things that are going to make the market democratic, because as they say, everyone's going to be able to find their thing, everyone's going to be able to find their niche. I think what we watched happen in 2014, 2015, 2016 is a whole bunch of indie developers hit that wall. Right. So, I mean, we still have friends who had successful Kickstarters who are still working on their games. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because I think there was just a tremendous overestimation of what these distribution platforms could actually support and provide. Yeah. Um, and so the indie apocalypse has been kind of the bubble bursting. I mean, and, I mean, relevant to this question, we talked about it in my games class, is that I guess a couple of weeks ago, Steam released a bunch of data on its sales. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was making uh, some this rounds on. Yeah, yeah. So, and what they said, they're like, more games than ever are making more than $10,000 in their first two weeks, right? Oh, wow. That was the big messaging of Steam's blog post. Ars Technica took their same data and they said, 80% of your games are making less than $5,000 in their first two weeks. Oh, wow. They're like, if you look at the losses and not just the winners, right? If you put the winners in the context of the overall marketplace, Mm -hmm. This is actually maps to what we know from like mobile phones and any kind of any kind of uh, any of these like digital distribution platforms where it's the 80-20 rule. 20% of your product makes 80% of your revenue and everyone else is just kind of like left to die on a cliff. Wow. Right? Yeah. So the indie apocalypse is literally that happening in like within the game industry. Right. Yeah. That's uh, that's definitely it. And, and, and when Untitled Goose Game came out, it was like, oh, wow, here's a breakout success. Here's maybe, you know, the glimmer of... Uh, yeah, I think, I think it reconjured all that hope we saw with other kinds of games like Gone Home or, um, you know, Firewatch or so. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, we can still have beautiful, well-made things get what they deserve. Yep, yep. And, and it was that, a... 
a, a great story and, and house house they're 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 very gracious and uh nice and sweet yeah. and wonderful it, it really was a yeah, they're the kind of guys you really want to have have a really breakout successful game right yeah everyone got to feel good about that moment absolutely um and so then fast forward, uh, here we are, um, and everybody's playing a different game. It, 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 it's similarity with Untitled Goose Game is it's also very cute, and it's got some cute animals. Um, yes. And that's Animal Crossing. So you've been playing uh, Animal Crossing, huh, Lane? Yeah, so, so you know, my, um, you know, I have not owned a, a Nintendo console since the Super NES, right? That was Whoa. the last time Classic. I owned it. I became a, I was a, a PS2 owner, and then I switched to Xbox, and that has basically been the only console. I had an X who had a Wii, and I would sometimes play that. But, like, really, the, the whole Nintendo um, kind of IP franchise world is not something that I ever really cared about. And I, I held a wall about Legend of Zelda and, you know, all, you know, Smash Bros. It was like, I couldn't imagine anything I'd want to play less. Um, <laughs> and then... You know, we're in quarantine and all of my friends are playing Animal Crossing. And I was like, well, motherfuck. Like, I can't. Oh, yeah. sorry. That's okay. You can say that. This is a. <laughs> I just, adult. I felt like I'm watching all of my friends play Animal Crossing. And I was like, you know what? To hell with it. Like, I'm going to, this feels like a phenomena of a, of a certain kind of scale. Um, you know, it was also about my friend networks. Like it really was, you know, all my friends in New York were like building out their little homes. And um, I kind of missed the window on being able to get my switch reimbursable by NYU. They like dropped the oh, wall. Uh, and I was like, okay, but it was my birthday. And I was like, I'm just gonna give it to myself as a birthday present. Oh um, my God. So yeah. I have my first Nintendo device, which is the switch, um, which is really interesting as a portable device, right? I've not owned a I don't think I've owned a portable video game platform since the Game Boy. Um, and it's, it's like, it does feel in between a phone and a, like it feels serious enough that I feel like I'm playing a game, yeah. but I would absolutely like pull it out in so many interstitial contexts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. tell us a little bit Lane about, uh, about your uh, world in Animal Crossing. And I think it's kind of interesting, right? That, that the premise of the game is that you're kind of, uh, you're, in debt trying to get out of it, but also you're kind of building your own little uh, space and we're all stuck at home building other homes online. What's that? Yeah, about? yeah, there's, um, I mean, I think there's been a lot of, you know, for lack of anything else to look at besides the horror show going on outside our windows, there's been a lot of commentary about what is going on in Animal Crossing and why is this a game that we're all responding to in this moment? Obviously, a lot of us have played these games before, have some familiarity with this franchise. Um, and yeah, Animal Crossing is this kind of, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of things that I think we would not, may, that we would maybe like not have bigger commentary about if we were not all stuck inside in the middle of a global pandemic that is also turning into the worst recession that we've seen in living history. Yeah. Um, and so these questions about debt, right, in the middle of a rent strike, feel very, <laughs> um, feel very alive, right? So, so yeah, in Animal Crossing, you, it begins with this frame story that you have decided to move to an island, and, uh, you know, you build your little avatar, and uh, only upon arrival, and only kind of upon, like, getting to your little tent, does the, 
the manager of the island, the, the, you know, Tom Nook, the infamous, infamous. Tom Nook, Tom who's Nook, like a yeah. little Japanese fox dog is there's a term for this. I forget what it is. Right. But he's like a kitsune you know. kind of. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he shows up and he's like, so about your bill. Um, and it's, Debt is this very active part of the game, right? You can only build, you can only build and expand your house through debt. Um, everything costs so much that you're constantly trying to figure out ways to kind of hijack the economic system for large gains. So this is what the stock market has turned into, right? Where, uh-huh. I mean, I actually need to log in later today because it's Sunday. I need to go get my turnips. And yeah, then what's I this to... about turnips? Is that the major currency? I haven't played this game, Lane, okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm confessing ignorance here. Okay, so um, there's so so turnips are a, I would say they're a resource, not a commodity, um, in the way that we would define these things in my class. So uh, the, the main commodity is, is bells, and so okay. you get bells when you sell things, uh, when you sell products that you, or resources that you find, um, and you pay for a lot of the things you want in bells. So like uh, clothes or new kinds of furniture. There's some stuff you can pay for in miles, okay. which is almost like being a, like a, you know, when you like sign up on a website to become like a preferred customer and they oh, give yeah. you credits when you do things. Okay. It's yeah. kind yeah. of like that. It's actually almost mimicking a sort of like, oh, I'm a Chipotle rewards member. And every time I order when I order guac three times in a row, I get some more credits that I can cash in to get a free burrito. Like it's right. that kind of circular reward system, right? <laughs> I actually, I, I actually think that, you know, it's interesting because Nintendo has struggled so much to develop compelling microtransaction systems in their actual mobile games. Right. And I'm like, you clearly just need to hire whoever designed this within Animal Crossing to fix Mario Run and Mario Kart, because whoever is running that has no idea what they're doing in terms of like how you actually, this, it's actually very well designed. Um, you show up on your, your little island and you owe a certain amount of bells and it's a pretty, first you owe 50,000, I think, to build your house. Whoa, that sounds like uh, a lot. It's a lot of bells, you know, wow. it took me over a week. Um, and I'm not a min-maxer of this game. Like that, that kind of destroys the joy of it for me. I've definitely got friends who are out there like, figuring out every single angle of this that's um you know i learned playing stardew valley that that's not how i like to play these kinds of games so are you more of an explorer or uh you know there's a different player i think i enjoy the i think i like having goals Mm -hmm. um i think i like you know being told like you need this many pieces of wood you know the the part like the animal crossing has a very um loose or almost non-existent kind of, I won't say non-existent narrative, but you can opt into a lot of it, right? So you are asked to pay your debt, but no one comes after you if you don't, right? So it's interesting that debt is even a premise because it doesn't correspond to any of the laws of debt. Yeah, and and you don't have interest or... There's no interest, there's no day of collection. Um, All it means if you don't go into more debt is that you can't expand your house. Okay. if you don't pay for it, nothing happens to you. Oh, that's all right. right. And so it's, it's like very much like historically that, not yeah. debt. Right, yeah. <laughs> In that way. It's like it's, a no interest charity loan, actually. <laughs> it's kind of how the federal government works, I hear. Um, and so the, the turnip market, the stock market is uh, on Sundays, there's a character that comes to your island 
and she sells, she's like a, I think she's a pig and she sells turnips Whoa. and tur- and you buy kind of as many turnips as you want from her in quantities of 10, 10 per unit. And then throughout the day, you go to your, throughout the rest of the week, you go to your general store and you ask them how much are turnips selling for? So what you're trying to do is find, is like have a, is like buy turnips on Sundays, either at your island or somewhere else, someone else's island where they're very inexpensive. Mm. Then you're trying to flip them later at the week. So it's actually a very basic prediction game, right? You're kind of gambling the market in a sense where you're like, all right, I can sell my turnips. I bought them at 60. I can sell them at 120, but do I think it might be higher tomorrow? Oh yeah. Yep. Or will your luck or will the price bottom out? Right. Mm. It's a very simple probabilities kind of absolutely. It doesn't contain any of the complex interactions that actual stock markets include. There's no shorting the market. There's no bonds. There's no like, um, I'm going to buy all of your, because, um, because there actually is no real demand for cash in animal crossing, right? There's just waiting. You can eventually get all the money you need if you're willing to do some of the work. Right, 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 which is very different from real life. Yeah, where you, you <laughs> can't short a market unless someone needs liquidity, right, immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it becomes a kind of baby stock market that's really just about, do I think I can make more money today or tomorrow, you know, or am I going to take a loss? And people do take losses. I mean, and there's, there's also been weird stuff going on um, where people haven't seen the spikes that they've seen, but there's also been these kind of, where Animal Crossing has gotten quite interesting is in these emergent practices. So there's been cases where, um, so lots of players are getting together on discords and in social media. And if you have a, if on your island you can, it is possible to sell your turnips for a very high number. Sometimes it can go up to 800. I think the highest I've encountered is the high 400s. So imagine buying a hundred turnips for 50 bucks each. And then you're selling them for like, close to 500 bucks each, right? Nice, nice. Um, you travel to someone else's island to sell them, and there's this whole emergent set of practices that are happening where on some people's islands, they, they, you know, they're just hanging out and you tip them. So you, you go and stand in front of them and you throw gifts or furniture or money in front of them uh, to thank them for uh, allowing you to be on their island to sell your turnips. Or in some cases there are, are kind of like um, almost like turnip bouncers. So some, some players have built, uh, when, you, when you travel to someone else's island, you come out on a dock and they've just built a fence around that and their character is there. And to get past their character, you have to pay them like 50,000 bells. Whoa, okay. Access so, their market. Okay, so, so the islands are different groups of actual players, right? They're kind of every, like a Every island is a player. Okay. Okay. Every island is a player. And so when you're playing the game, the whole reason to be social, it sounds to me, is to be able to, you know, have a friend with an island where you can really sell these turnips high. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a couple reasons you want to be friends with someone who has an island. Uh, because uh, you want to go to their stores because they, you have the same stores on your island, but every store sells different stuff on every island. Oh, wow. So I can buy clothes at my clothes shop, but like if I go to my friend's island, who knows what they're selling, right? Um, And so it is this kind of constant process of discovering how deep did Nintendo go on designing all these clothes and all these furniture and all these objects, right? When are you going to see something you haven't seen before? 
Wow. Um, and so that's a lot of the fun. That's you go to your friend's island, not to hang out with them because actually these games have really limited capacity for um, participating in social activities together. Can like you chat? Is there any? There's really limited chat. Um, you can only send a, you know, the messages can only be a couple words. Okay. Uh, one thing we did talk about in my class, there's been some interesting like protest action in Animal Crossing. So uh, there was a moment, I think two weeks ago, where Animal Crossing got pulled from a couple different Chinese storefronts. Oh. On the, and what is being presumed in the media uh, or in some of games journalism is that was because there were players holding like anti-CCP protests or like pro-Hong Kong protests in Animal Crossing, wow. which involved like taking an image of, um, I'm blanking on their name right now, but the, you know, the Chinese appointed uh, leader in Hong Kong, okay. turning it into a bitmap, putting it down on the sand, right? Like you can actually take an image and like turn it into a tile on the ground and then organizing a bunch of people to come over to your island and slap it with nets. Like, and, and to like publicly beat a political figure on the beach of your island. And these are, these are considered protest actions in a time when we cannot actually protest on the street together. Oh my God, okay. And so protest one of the things that happened was that a, like uh, some storefronts that were owned by Alibaba um, asked uh, their, their markets to pull Animal Crossing. Um, because it was so, providing a space for, you know, um, rising up and, and coming together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, wow. So it's actually been this interesting, uh, CNN did some coverage a couple weeks ago about how there have been marriages at work happening in Animal Crossing. It's a thing I'm talking with my students about, you know, kind of every week. Like, Is everybody playing it in your class? Um, I think a number of them are playing it, and then yeah. almost all of them know about it. Wow. Yeah, you know? I mean, so it's Even everywhere. if they're not playing, they have friends who are playing. Right, right. Wow, yeah. wow. Oh, wow. So, uh, so when we're done, you're going to get on and uh, see how much turnips are going I for gotta today. I got to go check and... my turnip prices later. Oh, on. my God. So this, what's interesting to me is these islands with the different stores and the different kind of prices for turnips. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems the U.S. has had is that these states are competing for PPE. You're also part of the distribution of PPE. So I feel like, Lane, you're kind of doing the same thing in your game and in your life these days. I didn't, you know, I had it. That's amazing. I hadn't pulled that set of relationships together. Um, yeah, the mark, I mean, in Animal Crossing, the markets make no sense because there's nothing, un there's no reality underpinning them, right? right? There's no actual supply chain. I mean, I sent out a series of tweets the other day where I was, I was kind of like, you know, what is the capital investment ratio of the bank of nook like can you know why can't we run, why, why can't we do a run on the banks if all of us withdraw our money at the same time right Ooh, there's yeah. really there's really hard limits on right? this is not a this is not a real financial simulation right it's not even close it's um, not like other games like world of warcraft kind of did have a financial market yeah where there was actual supply and demand right, right. and so the problem is the demand is always the game itself in a way, or, or like, like it gets where supply comes from is the game, but it doesn't, you know, you don't tend to sell your turnips to other people. You own, you sell them right. back into the game space. And then there's no, there's no problem about where that resource goes. 
because it's not like Tom Nook is trying to find a warehouse to put all these fucking turnips in. Yeah. It, like that, <laughs> that no problem. situation of the actual reality of the supply chain doesn't exist. So there's this very, um, you know, the emergent behavior has a kind of threshold limit to it versus the situation we're in now where it very much is about um, producing real forms of competition around actual physical goods and the, that, you know, if, if, the, if the federal government or, you know, Tom Nook United takes those things, there's actually a question about where do they go, yeah. right? That a isn't real, real in Animal Crossing. Yeah. Um, and has, you know, I've also been reading books about the histories of banks right now and like bonds and lending and, and you know, it's, it's interesting once you have a bit of that knowledge under your belt, how shallow something like the financial premise of Animal Crossing feels. Right. We're talking yeah. a lot about debt in that game, but we don't talk about the complete lack of reality. Like what is debt, right? Debt is the capacity of someone else to make money from, to, to make more money from money. To make and, money from your incapacity to have the money already yes. in hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, mm-hmm. That's kind of mind blowing. Um, and the fact that you're doing all this sort of like, uh, market-based research, it's or, or like looking into banks and financial systems, this has kind of been your approach to game history too, right? It's looking at the financial ecosystem around games themselves. Yeah, so I think a lot of my historical work has been focused on, let's stop thinking that games are the primary object of game history. Uh, I feel like this is the drum I beat constantly. Like, yes, it's a game. We should, un- you know, um, a lot of game preservation efforts focus on capturing uh, the game software, like the, the kind of, whether that's like the rip of the disc or, you know, how, how will we replay this game in the future? How will we be able to re-experience this game in the future? How will we know that it was an important game? And the thing I keep saying is like, a game cannot actually tell you its conditions of production. A game can't tell you why it's important. Um, or the how it was made or under what conditions, right? Games are actually incredibly silent as to that fact. You, what, you need, what you have to be able to do is take a game and situate it in a much larger conversation about supply chains and resources and labor and economics and reception and consumption to understand that games are these really like vibrant commodities. Um, and, you know, I think... I think we do a disservice to what we think history is when mm-hmm. we think that history is, is just about us knowing a bunch of facts about what happened in a game. You know, I want yeah. a game history that jacks itself into the rest of the world. I want us to understand the way that games are actually part of the world. And, and in some ways, they're, they move through economic and social systems in ways that are unique. And in some ways, they move through them in ways that are totally similar. And we should actually be able to talk about that. Um, I sometimes discuss nostalgia as something like a, you know, not quite an illness per se, but it is something that like limits our ability to get a bigger picture. And, and a lot of the work I've done um, is on saying like, what are the finances of this? We talk, so, we talk a lot about indie games and we talk a lot about the so-called AAA, but I tend to think we actually understand very little about how those things operate in like right. a concrete academic way. You know, yeah, it's fascinating, and and <clears throat> you know, I'm consistently reminded that uh, games weren't really an industry 
uh, in any kind of big way until video games came around. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, they certainly had their, um, they certainly had their place, right? Or they were minor industries, right? They were subsets of like entertainment industries, right? Or leisure, what we actually would probably more accurately call the leisure industry, yeah. which is what do you do once you have free time, right? You can make a lot. I mean, remember that Nintendo started, do you know how Nintendo, what Nintendo Tell me how Nintendo first started. Do you know what Nintendo's first products were? Uh, or do you know when Nintendo started? That's a really good question. Tell me, Lane, please. Uh, so Nintendo started in the late 19th century. They made playing cards. What? Yeah. Nintendo is over 100 years old. Okay. And they wow. began at the origins of the of a kind of leisure and gambling industry, right? So they, they were a playing card manufacturer. Um, and... If you look at the different things that they released over their history, a lot of what they were doing were, were kinds of uh, devices and electronics related to leisure. So Japan has a big leisure boom following um, what's called the Japanese miracle, which is the, the fact that you know it was massively economically depressed after World War II, but then pulled itself out of that with kind of shocking speed, right? More than any other Axis nation did. Um, and it successfully made a bunch of historic, like partnerships and with other uh, with nations like the United States, right, with Europe. Um, and so Asia, so Japan had this significant leisure boom beginning in the 1960s, not dissimilar from what you see in post-war America. Um, and so there was an expansion of leisure time. There, were quite, there was a rising middle class. Uh, and there was the question of what do we do with this time? And, and just like in the United States, there was a funneling of that excess money into leisure activity. Um, and, right. and, you know, Nintendo in the 1970s gets into producing um, electronic, I would say, home amusement entertainments that were intended to be connected to the television. So they did a number of Pong, they did Pong knockoffs. Right. Wow. This is all. So it's just like a. It's like a console, and the only thing it does is play pong. Yeah, yeah, or like a. Yeah, it's like basically a rip of pong. This was a very uh, common. Like cloning was super common in the, in the translation between the U.S. and Japan. Right. As soon as Japan saw that, like our like pong was a successful arcade game, they were like, we can we can rip that. Yeah. And then within two years, they built an entire independent industry of their own ingenuity and like like creative relationship to games. And this is all happening in the mid 1970s. And yeah, Nintendo, I think was in partnership. Ooh, I'd have to double check this, but I think with like, you know, um, Mitsubishi, which was also a company that didn't just make cars, but like made a whole bunch of home electronics. Oh, wow. Cool. And so they were manufacturing these Nintendo consoles that played a variety of different Pong games. And it was only, it was, it was through that trajectory that they wind up creating the Famicom in Japan that becomes the Nintendo Entertainment System when it's released to the U.S. market. Um, and remember that in Japan, so unlike the U.S., where our origins of the video game industry kind of start with our military-industrial complex, right? They start with right. the fact that the people who had access to computers were people in research labs and universities. Um, in Japan, it was, all through, it was all through the electronics industry. So there oh, wow. wasn't that same relationship to militarism that you find in the American uh, in American video game history. So Japan has this like 
kind of, you know, and because they were an island, they had to have an export business, right? They couldn't survive just on sales to their own population. And so they, they just had a different kind of, I would say, receptivity to a lot of these economic and political dynamics, right? And Nintendo had always been a banner corporation for thinking about leisure, okay, going back to the late 19th century. Okay, and an island country creates a game about being island. on an island. And, and also, you're blowing my mind here because I'm thinking about these like origins, right? The difference between the US origin and the military industrial complex and, and Japan and, and innovation in electronics and leisure. Um, and it kind of finds its way into the kinds of games that we think of as Nintendo games. They're not really shooters, right? Like we're, yeah. you know, it's like the shooter, uh, you know, that in the U.S. Is, is kind of the first video game ever made and continues. Yeah, think about some of these. I mean, I'm not an expert at this, right? I would totally cede to like uh, Naomi Clark on some of this. Or even, um, you know, Mia Consalvo wrote a book on, literally called On Japanese-ness in Games, right? It's called From Atari to Zelda. And it's really about this transnational flow between Japan and the U.S. And like, what has that looked like, you know, over duration? Um, but if you think about the iconic genres that we associate with Japanese production, right? So um, I think actually Naomi Clark has pointed out quite well the way in which Animal Crossing is a reflection of this, um, these kind of the Japanese practice of like the maintenance of the garden, right? I mean, think about where Neko Asume came from, right? Japan. The game about cats that you're the trying game, to attract. The game about cats. just petting a fucking cat, right? That's all <laughs> you're doing. You're not, like, there's no mechanics to this game, really. You're just, like, you know, moving your little cat around. Um, you think about the, the JRPG. You think about the visual novel, right? Like, there is a very distinctive, e even despite the fact that I would say the 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 flows between Japan and the U.S. are really strong, and it's you, you, so much so that it's hard to talk about an authentically Japanese game. I still think that you have kind of um, genre developments or styles that are very much more indebted to a kind of Japanese history than they are to a U.S. history, right? In the U.S., yeah, you get, um, you get the first-person shooter. You get the, you, particularly the, the militaristic tie. I mean, yeah. There's a little complexity to this, right? You know, the first breakout Japanese arcade game was um, Space Invaders. Well, there you are, shooting aliens. You shoot aliens, but also remember, there's no winning to Space Invaders. Aliens come endlessly. Until, right? you're, Until it's you over. are dead. Yeah. Right? There's no, there's no beating them. There's no eventual end state. They just come in greater volume and greater speed until you can't keep up with them anymore, right? And so even I think that as a, like the game is always a lose condition, right? You can only compete to be the person who staves off destruction the longest. Wow, incredible. Now that is, uh, uh, that is why you look at things beyond video games. You look at like where these things come from, right? Um, because it, it, it sheds new light on these things and it's not just about culture right it's about money and finance and and technology and all of those kinds of things all those reasons i think games are really interesting um i sometimes try to explain to people that i don't i mean i play a lot of games but like i'm not a historian of games because i love games i i'm a historian of games because i think games allow us to ask 
really good historical questions. I think that they're objects that trouble our sense of time. They trouble our sense of like personal relationship to the past. Um, I think they give us anxiety for all sorts of different reasons. And, and that is reflective in I think why for so long we've had such a shallow history. Uh, so for me, games are like optimal historical objects. They move through all these systems and yet we constantly want to deny that when we talk about them. And so it's like a, it's like a perfect historical problem for someone in my position. Wow. Wow. I, I feel like when you talk about nostalgia, you talk about the sort of object of game as that kind of nostalgic object that you're kind of like almost writing historical fanfic around. I think a lot of historians <laughs> kind of go there. Um, yeah. You're, you're, you're really looking at the, uh, uh, everything around the game, right? The game itself is, is, is just, I sometimes describe it as kind of a negative space, right? It's like, what if you took the game out of game history and then you tried to document everything else? What kind of account do you get? And the thing that's been really rewarding about this work is that when I've taken it to, I mean, sure, I presented in academic context, but I've also presented it the Game Developers Conference or MAGFest, right, or fan conventions, is that I think people are actually hungry for a deeper look at games. I think that people on people who are reading this stuff realize they're reading the same story over and over again and they really want a different, more complex, more serious way of thinking about this history of this thing they're really passionate about but ready to think harder on. Um, yeah, and that, so that's been really like touching and invigorating for me because people respond very responsibly even though I'm kind of up there sort of trying to gut their bunny, you know? <laughs> That's a way of putting it. Um, you know, I, and I think the other thing that um, you've been able to do by, by, by speaking at conferences and events where game developers are actually making games and in the process of making history is you've been able to tell folks, hey, save all the documentation around the game, uh, save the letters to, you know, your, your distributor and publisher. Yes. Um, that kind of stuff is game history. And I think you've really helped everybody kind of understand, oh, wow, this stuff's important for historians. That's definitely part of my bigger project is to say that like, like you just having a bunch of your games at the end of your career is not, is, it's something, it's not nothing, but, um, you know, it's not where the sausage gets made. Like, I want to understand where conflict existed. I want to understand where friction happened, um, a historian always looks at a document and says, why is this the thing that survives, right? We have a, a whole, a very meta way of reflecting upon what does and doesn't get preserved. Um, and, you know, when, when, we leave, when we only leave behind a certain thing, that is also a thing that we're, we're kind of curious about. It's like, why did no one think that any of this other stuff was important? Um, I can only do the kind of work I do because I do extensive oral history. There's so little of that documentation that has been preserved. And I think if we want an account, I, I think about this a lot about the present moment, right? About these indie apocalypse moments mm -hmm. where, where is our game history? Because game history, like any kind of history resides on the presence of documentation existing into the future. What of the now is gonna be saved? All of our journalism, is on these websites that could not exist, might not exist in two years, especially under our current economic climate, right? Where we are seeing journalists get laid off, or we are seeing deep problems happen around the precarity of this kind of labor. Um, what happens to all that information? Where does it go? You know, as we build games 
and and the way we do communication is through all these proprietary software networks. How do, you know memos don't exist anymore? Um, how will I know how a game was made or what was important? And this is something I've tried to build into my game industries class, where I have them work every semester on an encyclopedia of the game industry. So they have to pick a company that is that exists right now and oh, wow. write an encyclopedia entry on it, complete with resources in the anticipation of someone 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, needing to know what was that company today. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of capture um, a particular historical moment that I actually think is going to be very poorly documented. I think we've seen a very similar thing, the history of flash games, Facebook games. These are things that just evaporated out of our history because the object themselves don't exist and they weren't documented anywhere. That's right, yeah, no, I mean, that's incredible. Um, and even as you talk about, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, an old person in this realm <laughs> and have a specific, you, uh, you know, a, 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 a dignitary, a statesman, perhaps. Yeah, you know? there you go. There you go. And a, a games elder. Um, and, and when you talk about even um, uh, the, um, uh, the kind of premise of uh, going to different islands and buying different stuff in stores, I'm like, oh my God, that's plunder. That's a game that Area Code made way back in the, I gotta say, like early aughts that, yep. you know, you can't find. It's, it's you know, crazy. if Frank Lance is listening to this, I've, I, I have in my back pocket a desire to do it like a, uh, a kind of, you know, an area, like a area code oral histories, or I think just like a games in NYC because NYC, if you think also about where geographically do get, does game development tend to cluster, right? That's mm -hmm. often dependent on larger geopolitical and economic flows, right? So Seattle, the Valley, LA, but also other kinds of odd places, right? We have little clusters of game development in Boston or Atlanta, right? And New York is a really curious example, right? We don't have big business here, but we do have a few little like there was a there was an indie bubble the, maybe the first alley yeah yeah silicon alley the first real indie apocalypse maybe was stuff like area <laughs> i and, and game lab you know the flash games the sort of yeah. social games i i agree um you know my first video game the first one i made uh was for an advertising agency and it was about uh different things you can mix with midori cocktails <laughs> when did you make that i made that in um 1997 and it was like a flash online flash oh, game God. yeah uh, the, the moment where games and the internet meet is um you know it's a i think it had a lot to do with the economic consequences of who bought who who got bought out who went bankrupt um you know a lot of the companies that bought other kinds of corporations were trying to figure out if I buy this game company, will they help me make my internet experience more interactive? Like there was a lot of really shallow thinking, I think going on in the late nineties about yep. this kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, so it's super not surprising to hear that you made a Midori flash game. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, and you could mix Midori with milk. There was no winning or losing. It was just uh, <laughs> better and worse cocktails you could potentially make with a Midori mixer. Um, so yeah, there you have it. I mean, I, I'm excited about this encyclopedia that you and your students are developing. Is this something that we, folks can find online? Yeah, or? so it's all put up on the internet archive. I add to it every semester. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I usually at the end of every semester, I usually put a link to it, but you can find it. I think if you were to just Google probably, um, 
Encyclopedia of the Game Industry Internet Archive, I imagine it would come up. And yeah, those are all there's prob those are all entries that are written by former students. I've been doing this for about two years, and every year they're adding to it. And the great thing about my classes is is that I you know I have a very international student base, and so we also get you know I had an entry an exceptional entry last semester on like WeChat mini games, oh, or wow. I have students this semester trying to write about Douyu, or like you know what are streaming platforms in China or Kaku Talk. Um, oh, they, incredible. They have an international draft that I think will be really essential also to us trying to understand what was the game industry writ large. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I'll make sure that in show notes, we'll put a link to this encyclopedia. Sounds incredible. And, and Lane, um, I mean, I feel like what you're doing right now in terms of writing the history, uh, playing some Animal Crossing, helping uh, medical professionals get PPEs, you are, you are part of this historic moment. And you're really I love like, a supply yeah. chain, you know? Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very predictable in some ways. You know? Oh, there you have it. Lane Nooney, supply chain uh, professor. Uh, you know, and a uh, person extraordinaire who's really trying to make sure that the history of these games gets captured um, beyond just the games themselves. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. This was a delight. That was Lane Nooney and I talking about Animal Crossing. And that's it for Fun Games with Serious People, Season 1. A special thanks to Colin Howarth for producing and editing this season, and Yuchin Ma, our videographer. Our theme music is Rainbow by Chad Crouch. Fun Games with Serious People is made possible through a grant from the New School and Parsons School of Design, where the show is made and where I work. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in Animal Crossing or wherever else serious folks are having fun. <laughs>